Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Susan, this is a bit of a change for you, probably, because normally you're the one interviewing interesting people. But it's your turn now. So can I just begin by asking you, life beyond the numbers or beyond the numbers, what what does that signify? Yes. So when I started my business, I wanted to think about people beyond the numbers because we often talk about profit first and I like to think about people and not just profit and one of the numbers that really drove me to start my business is this number that bothers me a lot that 80% of people are disengaged in the workplace according to a Gallup survey so that means that 80% of people that go to work around the world do not enjoy what they do and aren't contributing as much as they could if they were more fulfilled at work. And that is why I started the podcast Life Beyond the Numbers, because I like to talk to people around the world who do enjoy what they do and who are also sometimes helping others get the best out of their job, their life and are in companies that treat people well and their staff are are engaged in work as a result. And my vision is that that 80% number can reduce and more people are engaged in the workplace and enjoy what they do. Have you always been in that 80% grouping that are not happy with what they're doing or have you... Have you gone beyond that? Did you go beyond that? Oh, always, I think. That was the thing. I think I've always enjoyed my work for the most part. I loved the variety of the work that I did. I enjoyed my colleagues. And it was only when perhaps there was bullying or there was management decisions that I was unhappy with that might influence my work. And I felt that I wasn't being seen or being heard or being listened to or appreciated or appreciated that I would think maybe it's time to move on. So mostly I think I was engaged at work, but I certainly saw many people that weren't and many people that felt they couldn't do anything about it. Let's go back to earlier times. What motivated you to get involved in essentially, I suppose, numbers uh, in accountancy you enjoyed it numbers i I hear (laughs) i did strangely enough i can remember my parents going to a parent teacher meeting 
when I was still in school and the accountancy teacher telling my parents that Susan should be an accountant. And I said, no way, they're boring and they wear glasses. (laughs) (laughs) But when I left school, accountancy was the subject that I knew that I had enjoyed doing while I was at school. And I decided that actually pursuing accountancy and numbers was what I wanted to do. And that is what I did. Okay, you did that in Galway University. Mm-hmm. You did your three years there. Mm-hmm. And while you were there, you were recruited by one of the established, what's so-called big six accountancy firms. At the time, they were big six. Now they're the big four. But yes, I went to work for Deloitte and Touche. Right. Before I went to Deloitte, I spent a year doing a postgraduate diploma in women's studies in the University of Limerick. And I was meant to do a master's in accountancy and I didn't quite get the grades for that, but I had an unconditional job offer. I just couldn't start for another year. So they said, if you go to university during that year and study something, you can continue with your accounting exams. So I did some accountancy exams as well as doing the graduate diploma in women's studies, which was great because it it opened my eyes up to the social sciences as well as just not being totally business focused. And I learned other skills and I learned research skills early on. And how did you find your time with with Delight and Tuition? It's your first job out of college and you have no idea what you're supposed to be doing. Yes, you're green. <laughs> yeah, you're green. And you're also studying and you're not getting paid very well. But you're also joining a community of graduates. There were, I don't know, 20 of us, say, that started around the same time and became a cohort that studied together and learned together and helped each other out. And there are groups ahead of you like that as well. And you're learning from those who have gone ahead of you as you go out doing the practical audit work. Okay, so did that involve a position of responsibility? I mean, were you a project leader or team leader? So you worked your way up. You started at the ground being a junior because you're, like you said, green. And, you know, one of the first jobs I ever went out on, my audit senior never explained things properly to me. And when the partner came out to review, the partner was quite upset with the quality of my work. And I remember thinking to myself there and then, because the senior never came to my rescue. So I thought, well, I'm never going to do a piece of work again that I don't understand why I'm doing it. And I'm also going to make sure when I do become a team leader that everybody on my team understands their responsibilities and their work and knows why they're doing something. And so I carried that with me as I went through the years. I asked lots of questions and I always understood the concept and the context of the work and then once I became a team leader which was in my third year and fourth year and I ran some really big audit teams up to I think the biggest team might have been 15 members and I made sure that every single person on that team understood their piece of the work that they were doing why they were doing it and when partners and managers came to review that we were prepared for that which is also just doing the work but I suppose I took pride in in having that Mm. responsibility and making sure there was quality and studied alongside passed my final accountancy exams 
And then in April 2000, I decided to head to Australia, as many people did at that time. And you decided to drop it all or had you become uh, disillusioned, perhaps, with where you were working or was your work unappreciated, do you think? Or? I don't think the work was unappreciated then. I think that you came out with your qualifications. It was a training contract, an apprenticeship. And yes, there would have been work to keep you on. But I suppose maybe from the beginning, I always had this idea that I wanted to travel. And once you have that qualification under your belt, you were free to go somewhere and earn proper money while you traveled as well. And at the time, a lot of people went to Australia. That's what people did. So you just virtually walked into a job within a very short time of arriving there. I did. I'd say I had a job within a week of getting to Australia. Okay. And so you were there during the Olympics of 2000. I was, which was an amazing time, really. And I got to see Cathy Freeman, the Australian runner, win gold. And I saw Michael Johnson sprinting and I saw Sonia O'Sullivan winning for Ireland. So there was, yeah, it was an amazing time to be in Sydney. And you travelled around, saw the country? Yeah, did Western Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, Whitsunday Islands, Tasmania, Adelaide, and then on to New Zealand as well for and so both North and South Island. So a lot of work, but also a lot of travel and fun. Okay. So from there, what happened next? So I got back to Ireland and I worked locally in Dingle on a short-term contract. And during that time, I realized that I wanted to see more of the world. And after living in Australia, I felt the best way of doing that was to live somewhere. So I really wanted to go to Africa and see Africa. And of course, Africa is huge. <laughs> I couldn't just go to Africa. I needed to go to a country in Africa. So I decided to volunteer as an accountant with a international humanitarian organization called GOAL. GOAL are an Irish Dublin-based organization that worked in many countries around the world and they interviewed me and then offered me a placing in Uganda as financial controller. And this was voluntary, basically? The first year, yes, that I worked with them. I didn't get paid, but I got my accommodation and flights covered and I got a, a stipend, a living allowance hmm. for food and so on. So you were based in? In Kampala in Uganda, okay. yeah. And did Goal have a an extensive presence out there at that time? So the when I joined the office that time, it was quite small. There were about 30 national staff. We had two offices, one in Kampala and one in another part of the country. And our budget was about 700,000. In the time I was there, I spent two years with them. We grew to having a budget of 4 million, six offices and over 100 national staff. And that was a lot of me working with the country director saying we have the capacity to take on more work. Mm. And there were there was an emergency situation in the north of the country with the Lord's Resistance Army who were roaming around and causing a lot of uncertainty. And we supported a number of communities up there as well with the work in that time. 
Um, did you visit some of these communities on the ground or were you based in an office all the time? So I spent a lot of my time in an office, absolutely mm. looking after the, the accounts and giving cash to people and managing the banks and the audits and all of that. But yes, I got to the field as well because the only way to really understand what you're doing is to see it from the ground up. Mm. And I can remember going to visit this place in northern Uganda one time where there was a lot of uncertainty and trouble at night and people it was a phenomenon it only happened in northern Uganda this this event where people would leave their homes in the evening and walk to a place of safety shelter for the night and then get up in the morning and go home again and they felt safe because this was the grounds of a hospital where I visited and the hospital was guarded by the Ugandan army at night. So people were safe in there. But obviously the shelter situation is terrible. People were sleeping on the ground. If it rained, they got wet. Kids were trying to do their homework under street lamps. It was really, really horrible to see. So some of the money that the donor governments gave us was to build more structures to enable people to actually have a bed for the night and for kids to do their homework under the lights. And shelter. And shelter, exactly. Basic needs. Essentially, they were afraid to stay in their own homes at night. At night, because they were being looted at the time and kids were being taken. Were there many people involved in that? Oh, yeah. The night we were there, I remember the guys were counting with a counter and clicking every time somebody like you'd see on an airplane. And I think we used to get at least two or three hundred people coming in from the neighboring villages, maybe more. And it was women and children that stayed in the hospital grounds. The men and boys had to go to the hills. So once we built shelter, then we built places for the men and boys and for the women and children. And they were separated essentially to stop any harassment at night or anything like that. And I think the men drinking the usual of people are the same wherever you go. And I also went to the islands in Lake Victoria and I went by boat. We had a goal boat and we went out. I was following the program people to see the projects that they were running And I can distinctly remember walking through this very, very, very poor fishing village in the middle of Lake Victoria and these small children looking up at me and screaming with terror and running away because they had never seen a white person before. Incredible. It really was. When you were working in Uganda, Mm. I mean, were people there, people that... The 30 people you mentioned initially, were they all very familiar with the way the goal worked or the way that they should have been working? I mean, was there much adjustment to be made? So I I probably had the greatest adjustment because I had to figure out how to work with people. It was a different way of, of working. But everyone was adaptable and we had some really, really strong team members. So you were with Goal in Uganda and... There was the tsunami in, well, Britain was all across Malaysia and across the Indian Ocean, Mm. as far as Sri Lanka. Mm. And you got a call about being involved in that. I did. What year was that? So early in January 2005, the tsunami happened in December 2004. 
I got a call from headquarters, school headquarters in Dublin saying, would I go to Sri Lanka for a month to help put controls and procedures in place as they scaled their response to the emergency? And I, of course, I jumped at the chance to do something else. And I found myself in Colombo a couple of a week or two later in the capital of Sri Lanka and very quickly was then deployed to a place called Ampara, which is on the east coast of Sri Lanka. A very, very small place where Goal was responding to the emergency there. It was a Muslim area, which was quite unusual in Sri Lanka, and it was devastated by the tsunami. And my job was to help the team that were there to spend the money according to the rules and restrictions that donors put on the funds that they were giving to respond to the tsunami. So these these donors are essentially, are they commercial people? Are they governments? Mainly governments. So you would have the EU funding. The EU is one of the biggest donors in the world. The American government, the Irish government would have been a big funder, the British government. So many of the individual European governments, as well as the overarching EU government, and then, yeah, others as well. So in this largely Muslim area of Sri Lanka that you were on the fieldwork there, how did you help them? Was it food or shelter or... So at the time, we we distributed a lot of what we called NFIs or non-food items. So, you know, people had had all their clothes washed away, their bedding and things like that. So we helped them with essentials. And also we built temporary shelters. And as they got around to rebuilding infrastructure, we would have put temporary shelter in place for people. Why did Goal particularly want you to go from your base in Uganda to to this location? I mean, did you have skills that couldn't be found there? So I suppose it's it's about the continuity and the standards and the processes that Goal had in place is one thing. And I had experience in the field. So Goal would take a lot of first-time volunteers, as they would call them, like I had been when I went away first. And oftentimes when people volunteer to do work overseas, perhaps they think that they're just going to be giving food out on the side of the road, that there is no accountability for every penny that's spent. Mm. But there's full transparency needed on expenditure to make sure that people aren't spending money by mistake or not getting good value for money or whatever it might be. And are not accounting are not accounting for it exactly and and not understanding why it's important and I think mm. that was one of the things and that's what I helped people do but of course when I got there first I trying to put a controls in place when people were used to just taking money spending it and not really accounting back for it not doing anything untoward but just not having that mindset that I then came along and said, you need to tell me what you want the money for, and then you need to spend it and bring me back the receipts. And people didn't like that. And they complained (laughs) to Dublin that I was stopping them from saving lives. Hmm. And- uh, By doing your job. Yeah, by doing my job. And I had Dublin ring me up, congratulating me for for putting a bit of order in the place. Hmm. But before I left, one of the elderly, (laughs) 
volunteers from Ireland came over to me and he said, Susan, if I were 30 years younger, I'd ask you to marry me. And I looked at him and I said, why do you think I'd want to marry you? And he said, it's only because you've made my life so much easier since I got here. that that's the best way I can think of rewarding. And what was at the basis of that, at the back of that? Was he involved in, in the financial side of it? Well, he was one of the project people who had been taking money every day, spending it, okay. and then losing track mm-hmm. and worrying about it, stressing about it, but not telling anyone. And so suddenly I came along and I showed him a system. And now he was sleeping at night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was a, an emergency, a natural disaster. And... I think you encountered another one. But before we talk about that, you went back to Uganda and you were deployed in the field. When I got back to Uganda, I convinced the goal headquarters that they need somebody that could move around, that wasn't a country program, an office didn't depend on me, but that I became part of the technical team where they had medical people and engineers and so on, but they had no finance person. So I became the roving finance person for goal and very quickly found myself in Sudan, in Khartoum, just around the time tragedy struck because there was a helicopter crash where a senior member of the South Sudanese government was killed. Riots broke out in Khartoum. It was all quite scary. And it was my first experience of lockdown, even the term lockdown, because as a team, we got locked down for a week because there was so much insecurity in the area. We couldn't leave the house. So how did you survive food-wise? I think at the time, from what I remember, we, we must have had some stores in the house, like tins and things like that. But then national staff who would have been better connected and known the situation were able to move around and get deliveries to us of fresh food and so on. Yeah. But it was also quite frightening. Yes, because it was like a like a war zone, probably, if you say there were rioting there and different factions, presumably. Exactly. And and one side of the city was being attacked one day and another side the next day and it yeah. kind of went back and forth like that. And was it all ground assault or was there was it aerial? No, it was it luckily it was all ground assault mm. and so you could hear shooting yeah. in the background and you could see places on fire and so on, but at least there was nothing being dropped from a height. So you were there, how long were you there? I spent three months in in Sudan and I'd say almost in my last week or two in Sudan, again, I get a phone call from Dublin saying there's been an earthquake in Pakistan. We need you on a plane tonight. So off I went to Pakistan to help respond to the earthquake, which happened in early October of 2005. And I got into Pakistan probably three or four days after the earthquake struck. When I experienced a lot of tremors during that time. I started out in Islamabad, opening up bank accounts, making sure we could transfer funds to the field, helping people as they came in from headquarters to help out, doing donor proposals with budgets, managing the cash flow, making sure the safe money was kept. 
people were bringing cash into the country for us because the banking system wasn't up and running. And I also deployed to the field on a couple of occasions and saw the devastation that the earthquake mm. had caused in Kashmir. What about your relationship with the people who are working on the ground there? Again, you're in the position of having to control the finance. Was there a resistance? There's always resistance <laughs> to finance. But I, I learned over the years that once you explain to people why we do things the way we do things, people usually understand. So it's not like ordering people, you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. It's taking a bit of time to sit down with someone to explain to them that actually uh, the reputation of the organization is at stake if the finances aren't managed correctly. And also it's a protection for them. So was there ever an occasion when, you know, the different projects that you worked on that people perhaps um, didn't account fully for funding or did you ever have to fire people? I had to fire a lot of people over the years and sometimes for theft or for attempted fraud or they falsified documentation. And yes, so I've had to fire a lot of people, conduct a lot of investigations and disciplinary hearings. And it's also a very, very difficult thing to do to sit down with somebody and end their employment, especially a lot of the people I worked with had families dependent on them and they were already poor from a, an economic perspective. Yet if they broke the rules, then there had to be consequences. So initially it was probably very difficult for you, as it would be for anybody, to fire somebody. But as the years went by, did it become easier? <laughs> It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I I got more comfortable at doing it, but I always found it stressful. I would have that feeling of, oof, this is something really big now today, and mm. I have to be there for that other person. So even if I feel nervous or upset, I need to keep that because this firing is not about me, it's about the other person. One of the things that I learned, I suppose, that people don't hear what you're saying when you deliver bad news often. They hear it and they go into some sort of shock and they'll ask you the same question over and over again until it resonates with them. And I learned to sit there in silence until they were ready to ask those questions. And I would repeat the answer as many times as they needed because people were in shock. And I think that was something I learned to do rather than trying to fill the silence or hurry through what is a very difficult time for people. I took time to do it. It was always upsetting. And, and all, sometimes people knew it was coming. And I can remember going to Ethiopia one time to let somebody go. And we ended up having a really great conversation about how he might treat people better going forward in future jobs so this doesn't happen to him again. So you, you can get different reactions from people, uh, but it's never about you. I think that's the thing. But sometimes people got upset with you as well, of course, because you're the messenger. 
So we're talking a lot about numbers, but I, I'm getting the, the feeling that behind it all, it's an awful lot to do with people. It really is. And I think that's what I learned is the only way you get anything done and that you get work done, what you want done, is by building relationships with people, good, strong, working relationships, and being able to take time to understand what people's fears are or doubts or where they struggle with things they do and help them to overcome that and to be able to do their jobs properly. And a lot of the time, we think we don't have time to do those things. And we think everybody should just get along or everybody should just collaborate. And, and there is no room to, to develop people's people skills. But the better you are working with people, the further you'll go and the happier people will be. Let's move on. You left goal and... A short time after you became involved with an organization in Manchester called MAG or MAG, uh, tell, tell us what, what does that represent and what sort of work was involved? So, yes, I left school in early 2007 and I went to speak to MAG, the Mines Advisory Group, who cleared landmines and unexploded ordnance around the world, so remnants of conflict in many of the hot spots like Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, but Iraq and the Congo and places like that where there had been long-term conflict and landmines left behind. I was 33 years of age and they offered me the director of finance job and it seemed like a fantastic challenge I was probably a little naive at the time because there was a huge backlog of work and there was a lot of financial controls and procedures that weren't in place. But the organization had been told they needed to sort out their finances or, or donors might stop funding them because they had a great reputation for the work that they did and their financial reputation was kind of holding them back. So I went in and I helped turn that around and while I was director of finance I was still a director in the organization and much of the work I did involved representing the organization and speaking and negotiating with donor governments in Europe in, in Europe in the US yeah in places like that to show them the work that we were doing, that we were also trying to get our finances to the same level uh, and quality as the work that we were doing in the field. I also got to walk through some minefields, some cleared paths, so that you could really see firsthand the work that went on. And that, again, would give you great motivation to make sure that every penny was accounted for correctly so that they could continue that work. What sort of a budget did you have? So when I went in there, it was about 17 or 18 million and it, it grew up to close up to 30 million, I think, by the time I had left. Before we started recording, you told me of an incident where one of these donor governments actually wanted to get that money back, a considerable amount of money. Yeah. So they had done an audit 
for a five years worth of audit from a number of years previous to, to my tenure there. And the auditors had disallowed a lot of the expenditure because of lack of receipts or whatever it might be. And they had also then extrapolated that out over the five years. They'd maybe looked at one year and they said, well, if it's this amount. So they were looking for, yes, close on a million euros to be returned. And that's a huge amount of money and probably would have possibly made us bankrupt at the time. And I sat with the donor government and we talked through really what was going on, the underlying causes and also everything that we had put in place. And they did say to me when I was leaving that they were convinced by what I was telling them, that they could tell that I had that integrity and that I was being honest about the situation we were in and where we were getting to. And therefore, they were willing to, to let this go on this occasion, which was an incredible piece of good news. And it almost, I suppose it, it contributed to the fact that while you were with Meg uh, in Manchester, that you received a, an award. Tell the listeners about that. Yes. So I was nominated for a Manchester Cranes Business 40 Under 40 Award. And that basically was in Manchester, people who had excelled or achieved something great under the age of 40 were all nominated for these awards and then they were awarded to 40 mm. people and I was selected as one of the winners which was a lovely tribute and recognition of some of the value that I had brought to the organization right and how much under 40 were you at the time <laughs> I was a good bit under 40 at the time I must have been 35 or 6 then you left Maeve, the Mines Advisory Group, and you came back to Dublin. I did. I, I needed a break, probably, in one way, after a, a, like a long time working overseas. And I decided I would like to go and study nationalism and ethnic conflict. As an Irish person overseas, I had become very interested in, in what my Irish identity meant to me and to others and why people fight for their countries and causes like that. So I found a master's in UCD and I studied that there. And I learned a lot about group dynamics and identities and what they mean to people. And actually it helped me so much more in my work after that because I understood a lot more about motivating people and teams from that because a lot of it was almost the psychology behind groups and teams. And what was your thesis? Well, so I did my thesis on the variation of sexual violence in armed conflict, looking at where rape had been seen as a weapon of war and trying to show that it wasn't inevitable because there was a lot of talk at the time that rape was always inevitable. And I looked at conflicts where rape was used as a weapon of war, but I also found conflicts where rape wasn't used as a weapon of war. And I think the very interesting thing, which also for me shows about organizations is if the commander who was in control of the group, the armed group, whether it was the army or a non-state actor said there was to be no rape, 
or rape was not to be used as a weapon, then it wasn't. And he set the tone for the culture or she. And that's the same in organizations often. It's the tone of the, at the top that sets the culture for an organization. So if somebody at the top says, we're putting people first, where that is the culture I want, then the organization will be like that. So a company is only as good as the people who work for it. And if they're treated properly and there's no bullying, they get the best out of it. Exactly, exactly. Right, so you're off again. <laughs> <laughs> this time to Geneva. Okay, what, what brought you over there and what was it all about? So I went to Geneva to the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, or GAIN, as it was called. It was largely started by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the mid-noughties. And we looked at malnutrition around the world but we weren't just treating malnutrition we were trying to understand the underlying causes we worked a lot in southeast asia as well as africa and i went in to work in finance on a three and a half month contract and i stayed for six and a half years and changed jobs a couple of times including being the interim agriculture and nutrition program manager where I learned about large-scale food fortification and fortification of rice. And a lot of it was about putting micronutrients back into food. So you were trying to, the process was improving the diet. Exactly. Hmm. Improving the diet. Exactly. That's what it was about. And, you know, in a lot of countries, the soil has eroded over the years or things have happened. The nutrients have gone out of the soil. They're not always in vegetables that are grown. And so it was about ways of researching how things might be done better going mm. forward and adding vitamins into milk or to vegetable oil and things like that people take every day. So you were traveling a lot. Yeah, I spent a lot of time, particularly in Bangladesh. I spent a lot of time in Bangladesh where, interestingly, the Bangladesh government were sued by some of the oil refineries there because they didn't want to... This was a vegetable oil. Yeah, vegetable oil refinery. They didn't want to take on the cost of fortifying the oil with minerals and vitamins. And we were named in that court case. So there was a lot of focus on us and also a lot of time spent negotiating with the government on how to represent, talking to lawyers and being in the background of all of this happening with some influence over how we addressed and tackled things as well. And eventually the, the government won and the case was thrown out, which was a fantastic achievement. And Bangladesh is a very interesting country to work in. And I spent a lot of time with the staff there because we we used to have turnover of staff and there was like some bullying going on in the office and we had to kind of root it out. And often some cultures are very good at speaking out about wrongdoing and others, the command and control is so strong. It's often very hard to figure out what's really happening. So I used to spend time in the office. I might stay there for three weeks hoping to pick up on the dynamics of what was really going on. And of course, you only understand what people want you to understand because 
they can speak a different language, you know, and all of that. But I won people's trust over my time coming and going to the stage where people would come to me and say, we need you to come out and help us sort out a problem we're having. And I always felt that was that was great when I knew that people trusted me and they also knew that I wouldn't just talk about it to anyone else. And I can even remember one day being there investigating something that was happening. And I told each person as they came into the office and sat with me that my notes were being kept in Irish so that they could say anything they wanted. And I would show them the Irish handwriting. And it was great to have that extra skill that allowed people to trust me even more. So they, they told you. They told me what was happening and we were able to sort it out and deal with it. Okay. Yeah. So you stayed six and a half years in Geneva uh, while traveling around as well. And then you decided enough is enough. I'm going to paddle my own canoe and set up my own business, which brings us back to the start of this interview, beyond the numbers. So essentially... Yeah, so essentially, the big number that I like to talk about that I said at the beginning is that 80% of people are disengaged in the workplace. And personally, and from my experience, I feel that there is a lot of micromanagement and bullying and bad practices with people that have gone on over the years. And I think it contributes to some of the mental health and well-being issues that we hear a lot about now. And I feel that I'm able to take on a lot. I like to be able to sit down with people and understand what's really going on by diving a little deeper into fear and doubts and the answers that they'll give when when asked why they're behaving in a certain way or, or, or somebody who is troubled by having a terrible boss and doesn't know how to deal with it that they can also have someone to confide in. And, you know, some of the people I speak with will often say to me, oh my God, it was so good just to be able to talk to somebody because I don't have a peer in my organization that I can have this conversation with. And you understand what's going on. And just having someone listen to me helps so much. So I think sometimes especially if if we're independent and we're good at what we do, we want to be able to solve our own problems. But that old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved, is very, very true. And I like to be able to look at things with some compassion as well as empathy to tackle issues that maybe people want to sweep under the carpet so that they're out in the open And actually, as you open things up, people respond better to each other. They start to trust each other better. And then they feel seen, they feel heard. And as a result, they contribute better and profits go up. (laughs) So it's almost like magic, but it's not. But it's something that a lot of us think we don't need help with or it doesn't need to be tackled. And I really can see how it does. And it's wonderful to work with people and see that change. So having heard all that, what's what's your vision for the future of your work or work in general? 
Yeah, so we've just been through such an interesting time where work has really changed with the pandemic and how we work with one another and remote work, hybrid work, in-person work. And what I would really like to see going forward is behaviours that have been brushed under the carpet actually come out in the open, that we look at some of the underlying causes of poor mental health in the workplace as being related to bullying and micromanagement, and that they're tackled, and that 80% number I talked about earlier on is reduced, and reduced significantly, so people feel valued for the work they do. They're seen, and they're heard, and the world can see beyond numbers. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.